you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor of the Springs here. And I serve alongside, more importantly, our team of elders that truly leads this church. Uh, it's, I'm one of three. Thaddeus Brown and Jess Stevens are the others. I'm tasked by them to serve as the lead pastor, which means that I, I serve and, and direct our staff, which helps us to make disciples. And I preach the Word of God. Today I get to start a new series that we are running through the Bible. It's a series called The Story of the Bible. The Story of the Bible. We're going to behold God's redemptive plan from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to kingdom consummation. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet to honor God's word. We are in Genesis chapter 1, and if you brought your Bible with you, and maybe you're not... uh, familiar with Bible stuff? Well, this is the day for you because we are on page one in everyone's Bible. That's where we are. Page one, Genesis chapter one, verses one through five is where we'll start and we'll carry on towards the end of the chapter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from darkness. And God called the light day. And darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning on the first day. We'll fast forward to day six. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The word of God. Thanks be to God. God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, please add a blessing to the reading of your word that's beyond our best ability to try to put together human thoughts my best ability to articulate something. Lord, I grew up so confident about how I saw the world and how I thought I understood you. And my confidence was weighed down by great ignorance about you and your nature and how you desire to work with mankind. But Lord, my ignorance didn't stop you from revealing yourself to me. I didn't educate myself or learn my way to knowing you. I was sought out by you, by other Christians. I was drawn by your Holy Spirit. I was brought to life from the dead. I was illuminated to your truth more than just listening to words like we just read, I was given graciously ears to hear. 
It's a great mystery, and that's why I'm praying right now, God, that that same mystery would unfold in this congregation now in a way that echoes in history, that those who don't know much about you and what you're doing, even those who know that they don't know, would be illuminated with your word, by your spirit, and that the rest of us, we would see a deeper resonance and color of your great glory in the story of history and of the Bible from the beginning. Help us, God. Amen. This series we're going to be doing is super crucial. Let me tell you at least one reason why. I think what's very, very common is for us to know a handful of stories in the Bible, but to not really know the story of the Bible. And also to not really know that we don't know. We, we don't know where it came from, how the Bible was pieced together, and what it's all about. So what we're going to do this whole spring is we're going to kind of run through the Bible thematically, pointing out different topics from the start to the end of the Bible. And we're doing this alongside Mosaic Church in Austin, our sister church in Austin. And we are heading the next 12 weeks with a topic that starts with the letter C. So the first of which is creation, which we'll spend a few weeks here at the start of Genesis. And then down to Genesis 3, catastrophe. And then to Genesis 12, calling. And then community in Exodus. And then the crown in First and Second Samuel and Kings and Chronicles with David in particular. And then corruption, the following kings. Sad story. Captivity at the end of the, New, of the Old Testament. And then to the New Testament, Christ, the cross, the church, and finally to Revelation, consummation. It's going to be a mad dash of glory in the Word of God. I'm excited, and I hope you get excited too. And I trust that God will help you. Today we're going to unpack the first part of Genesis, talking about creation. Creation. Now, every worldview, whether it's religious people who know they're religious, or the rest of people who are religious in another way, Every worldview has a different telling necessarily about origins, origins, an origins story to every worldview or system of thinking. If you don't know where you come from, it's hard to navigate where you're going. In so many ways, this is a a sad commentary on the current state of our nation, we lack a robust view of history and therefore we languish for a solid vision for the future. But for the people of God, there can be great hope in this, in our culture's languishing. Because nations rise and nations fall, but the word of God stands forever. And God has always preserved a people for himself that transcends nations and cultures. And so we want to get a fresh perspective of what he's been doing from the beginning and what he's doing now, why he created us and how he created us, and hold that up to the light of where we make things fuzzy today. 
and watch what God does. So I'm going to teach our passage by stringing together four thoughts that help us to understand this chapter of Genesis in context of the whole story. So here we go. Thought number one, creation reveals God's glory. Creation reveals God's glory. Let's zero in on the first few words of the Bible. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Stop there. In fact, even the first part of this this verse is amazing, informative, if we just slow down and read it. In the beginning, God. What's translated here in four English words really comes from two powerful Hebrew words that really form in a powerful way so much of history. Two Hebrew words, Reshith Elohim. Reshith, it's these three words that we, where we get these three words, in the beginning. It's the Hebrew word for first, beginning, best, chief. In fact, the, the book of Genesis was known for thousands of years by Jewish people, the book of Reshith, in the beginning. It's, it's good for us to know that the way God starts things is in many ways a design of how we, sh- we should see as things ought to be. Reshith. Elohim, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. If we would just put those words over and against all the other struggles of our life, our life would make so much more sense. In the beginning, God. You know, the primary reason why so many of us often get confused about the purpose of our lives is that we wrongly think that it has to do with our life's purpose as opposed to his purpose for our life. We think that we're the protagonists of our story. And it's it's not just my, my generation, the millennials or whatever. It's all of humanity. We get myopic and think about just our lives and our purpose, but it's not our lives. That ridiculous song, the... It's my life. It's now or never. I ain't going to live forever. That is nonsense. Sorry, Bon Jovi. Because listen, my life is not my own. To you, I belong. I give myself. I give myself to you. Or contextually, I give myself back because it was always your life. Now, my life is not my own. That's a lot easier to sing, harder to sing, still work on that. But listen, it's a lot easier to sing than it is to reflect in faith when God puts his hand on, is this money, is this time that I've given you to temporarily steward this breath that you think is yours, but it's mine, is this life yours? That's where it takes faith. And we have to tend to, to trade our idols for this notion that my life is not my own. It's not my life, neither now nor ever. English check? Never. Neither now nor ever. Nailed it. 
Sorry. <laughs> Trying to be good English. I think that old cliche is helpful in this case. His history is his story. I'm not the giver of life. I'm the receiver of life. I'm not the creator. I'm the created. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He's the protagonist of the story. He's the hero. Reshith Elohim in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light. And I love the, the commentary at the end of God's quotes. And there was light. Simple as that. Because God said, this is the essence of creative glory. He speaks, and even the nothingness obeys his voice, and nothingness becomes somethingness. Somethingness, that's, I've got to copyright that. But it becomes something. It's ex nihilo, out of nothing, something. God speaks and even as he's speaking and creating sound waves, it turns into light because he said so. And this is a great mystery, how God would speak, and all of a sudden, boom, matter exists. Or as some physicists assert, bang, matter exists. Either way, this is a great mystery of astrophysics that we still haven't quite resolved. Why is there something rather than Nothing. Why does matter exist in the first place? Well, John, the Apostle John, says this. He would assert that something or someone was there before the beginning of matter. 1 John 1.5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. See, before matter was God. And at a perfect moment in time, in fact, the moment that he created time itself, he speaks onto the canvas of creation that he just created, light. And light exists. It obeys his voice. In so many ways, we're going to see, my point two, we're not there yet, but that man is made in God's image, but in so many ways, so is light. Light is made in God's image. It's projected from the perfect light, we see the light of the sun. Now, I love how David correlates God's creative power in light to how he speaks, to how he even specifically created the sun, and what the sun is a light in a projection, in an image of. And David in Psalm 19, he kind of poetically relates the glory of God in creation to these words, let there be light. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day and day to day pours out speech. Well, this is like a, a visual speech of sorts. It says, night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. 
How glorious is our God? I encourage you to get in touch, not just mentally assent to, okay, creation reveals God's glory. I encourage you to demand that your whole body, soul, and spirit, spirit regularly, habitually bows down to this reality. Practically, I find myself, when I lock myself inside, busy with what I think is so important, because God needs me or something, right? No. And I find myself inside trying to get busy work done. If I don't go outside regularly, I get even stupider. <laughs> so I need to go outside and breathe in the air. And I'm encouraging you to regularly un- unlock yourself from the things that might busy you and go outside and uh, not some sort of new, cr- new, you know, new age thinking like, you know, like get in touch with the spirit of the soil and thank it, thank it for its contribution to your life sort of thing. I mean, like behold the majesty of God and breathe in his air. The same God who carved the canyons and lit up the Milky Way and even engineered the tiniest microscopic bacterial flagellar motors. That same God wants you to go and rest in his majesty as you behold creation. So often you just maybe think that God needs you to figure your life out. But God's wanting us to so often just stop that and go and rest in his majesty. Creation reveals God's glory. Number two, humanity reveals God's nature, or as it says here, his nature and his likeness. God is a relational being. One God, three persons. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. I love the many, many ways that grammar has shaped history. And this first person plural is one such example. Before Christ, Jewish scholars for millennia had no real explanation about what to do with this let us make man clause in verse 26. But then with the coming of Christ, he fully reveals his relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, Genesis 1 from thousands of years before Jesus all of a sudden makes sense because Jesus and what he revealed in his relationship with the Father perfectly and with the Holy Spirit is the key to understanding. We can't understand the Bible without Jesus. Jesus reveals why let us make man in our own image makes sense. Any explanations, alternative explanations actually about this, about maybe it's something else other than a literal first-person plural of three persons and one God. There was no other alternative explanations until like three centuries later. Almost kind of like, oh, let's, let's come up with something else because this thing's taken steam. Well, it's, the reason why it took on with Christ is because it's true. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, right here in Genesis 1, said, let us make man in our own image. He has always been 
a Trinitarian God, one God in perfect harmony, perfect relationship with himself. He's always revealed this in the Old Testament, but in Jesus, it's fully revealed and demonstrated that as verse 27 says, God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Don't know why it repeated that, but then it says male and female, he created them. We need to be brave to read the Bible slowly and hold our cultural presumptions in check. So often what people reject about a culture's sexism or racism or whatever else, and they think that they're rejecting Christ, tragically we're rejecting people that don't read their Bible carefully. So slow down and track with me. This does not say that God created man in his own image. I understand if you take a little piece of English out of it, it says that, but it doesn't say that. It says that God created mankind in his own image. The the Hebrew word Adam, which contextually we know is mankind, plural. That's why it says he created them. What this means is that the perfect harmony of how God has always been in relationship with himself and three persons, there's a unity within perfect diversity. It's expressed in creation. How? When people walk in true and profound unity with one another. That's why Psalm 133 says, Oh, how good and pleasant it is when brothers, or we could say sisters, Dwell together in unity. And we know that that this is an anointing from God. We know that this cannot come from human effort. This is a blessing from God who made us to reflect his image in our unity within diversity. But how is this divine unity best revealed? Well, it says here, male and female. Or as the chapter, chapter one goes on to clarify and how we really need to continue to clarify marriage, marriage between one man and one woman. There's so much beauty written into creation with how God designed us to be different and yet united. Men and women are different I had to go to college to to find that out. But let me just ask a question. What's better, man or woman? Some of you are like, oh, snap, this is a trap. (laughs) Yes, it is. Don't answer the question. It's like asking the question, what's better, an old Ford F-250 truck or a Mercedes S-Class? Well, what's better if I'm trying to haul around a bunch of dirt, which has some value? It's the F-250, right? Men, don't get offended by that. We can haul things. We have better tow capacity. But which of those two, which is nicer? Which is better? Which is prettier in some ways? Which is more expensive? Now, this is where the illustration, this is where the illustration gets perfect, or not. Moving on. In every wedding, I get to say this. God created men 
and women differently, nonetheless with unique complementary roles inside the covenant of marriage. We see that together, the man and the woman accomplish what neither could accomplish on their own. This is true of how God designed humanity at large, and it's true about how he designed marriage. Let's stick with marriage for a second. Our elder team is, is led by a team of three elders. In so many ways, we can only be expressing the image of God when we're in unity with one another. But the other layer that brings God's beauty and his wisdom to that is how we can be in unity with our wives. And this is expressed when we went on our elders retreat last month. We saw God bring us so much wisdom when we got together with our wives. And honestly, on a practical level, it looked like by the power of the Holy Spirit, us just stopping and listening to the brilliance of what God was speaking through our wives, listening and gaining and organizing the wisdom that God gave them, the the heart of God expressed in the wisdom that God's given us in this restored unity. God created mankind in his own image, and we reflect that when we walk in unity. Now, let me bring this back to the mankind thing. I realize that most of us in here are single people. We're not married or not yet married, whichever God chooses. But today, can we reflect his glory in this unity within diversity? The answer is only with God's help. But with God's help, we can do the most difficult and, and dare I say, impossible things to walk together with people who are drastically different than us. To where we can look and say, we can walk in a type of unity that doesn't make sense to the culture around us. And we can be friends and we can be united. We can hold up each other's weaknesses. My strength is now your strength. Your strength is my strength, and I'm not left alone with my weakness. We can walk in so much unity that the culture around us that maybe could attach to one point of unity with us, but not the whole of God-driven unity, the culture around us will look at us and say, this, this does not make sense unless Jesus raised from the dead, which he did. We'll get to that at the end. Creation reveals God's glory. Humanity reveals God's nature. But let me pause here. You say, Peter, then why does this have to be taught? If it's revealed, you know, if it should just be manifestly obvious, like we should just be kind of locked into what's already, you know, clear to us, why do you have to teach it in a Christian church? You know, why, why do we even have to think about it? Well, because sin distorts what would otherwise be clear. Verse 3, sin reveals God's wrath. We're going to map out the origins of sin in a few weeks. But sin distorts what God has graciously and passionately desired to reveal. And it incurs wrath because he's just. He doesn't allow sin to just be ultimately unpunished. He's a just God. My story is that I found a strange amount of comfort in this 
on uh, September 10th, 1997, one week before I became a Christian. And, and it was a weird kind of comfort because I went to a, a student-led Bible study and I heard about sin and what the Bible says about sin. And I left there extremely troubled and yet totally more peace than I've ever experienced. You might say that that sounds absurd, but anyone here who's ever had a, uh, an illness, a physical illness, misdiagnosed or undiagnosed, you know what it means to languish in the confusion of why am I feeling this? And, and I had been misdiagnosing my sin problem my whole life, and then I get punched in the gut with, oh, this is, this is way beyond, this is way worse than I thought it was, and yet it brings me peace. And in that discomfort, I came back the next week, and I realized that even though sin is way worse than I thought it was, God's plan to redeem me is way greater than I could have ever imagined. The wrath that, that's not just created by us talking about it in church, it's created by our system of living and what we do. We're going to get to that how God restores us and his plan. That's point four. Uh, I'm going to ask you to be brave to really consider what we're still talking about as far as God's wrath and sin. Sin reveals God's wrath. And I'm going to ask you to be careful. Check your own presumptions because we, in our sin, naturally kind of go towards these uh, categories that are miscategorizing sin. We, we create a them to the sinful people that incur God's wrath, as if it's them. But it's not just the liberals or the conservatives or whatever them we might create. It's us. It's we who have corrupted God's creation. Verse 4 here is really interesting Verse 4, it says, And God saw that the light was good, and God separated light from darkness. He separated light from darkness. God tends to call things certain names, and it categorizes and orders things in a way that pleases him. Night and day, good and evil, and part of the sin problem is that which he has ordered, we naturally are inclined to disorder. And the people who lose out on that is us. We think we're liberating ourselves when we're further enslaving ourselves. I hear people say to me sometimes, well, Pastor Peter, not everything's black and white. There's gray area. And ironically, the people who say that are like totally making my point. Because there would be no talk of gray whatsoever without the necessary uh, boundaries of black and white, which God has created. He separated the day from the night. He calls things a certain thing. And his voice that calls things a certain thing is authoritative. And our tendency to try to call them other things is futile and damaging, incurring wrath and oppression of our own doing. I've heard in, in weddings, this is a common phrase, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Yeah. 
But since the beginning of time in our sin, or almost the beginning of time, beginning of sin, we've been trying to separate what God joins together. And we've been trying to wrongly conjoin what God has made to be separate. Light and darkness, good and evil, male and female. Remember, God is light, and in him there is no darkness. When we confuse, when we suppress the expression of God's wrath, his, judge, his judgment's often seen in that. And oftentimes it's what we do in the confusion may not be volitional. It may not just be, I'm deciding to uh, rebel against God, and I know it. it it's it's a, also a matter of our condition in sin as well. And we're responsible before God for all of it. It's wrath. I think a, a really great way to understand, the best way, I think, to understand God's wrath is Romans chapter 1. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And he's going to anchor back into creation again. For what, God, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. We are without excuse. Now Paul goes on to, you can put your finger on Romans 1 and read deeper into it later, but he goes on to uncomfortably be specific about how, left to ourselves, our minds become darkened and we blur the lines between God and the creator, and then his creation between wisdom and foolishness, between glory and indignity, between love and sex, between male and female. And listen, we all become abusers. This is not them. This is us. Most common form of wrath displayed in the Bible isn't an active wrath where God is sending tornadoes or whatever. It's called passive wrath, where God allows us to think foolish things and do foolish things, and he lets us do what we want. And if you can look at the worst of world history and the pain of current news that's hard to stomach, that's basically an expression of Romans 1. It is way too real. Sin reveals God's wrath. Sin distorts our view of what God has made clear. God did not create things to be fuzzy and confusing. We have made it that way. We have contaminated. We have perverted. We have distorted. And in the wrath, we try to create us versus them categories. Trying to absolve ourselves from the wrath, and the wrath remains. Let me give you one specific example. July 4th, 1776, a letter sent from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to the Crown in London, the U.S. Declaration of Independence. This gets back to the creation story and how we're so fuzzy. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, 
that they are endowed by their creator. Indeed, in his image they are made with certain unalienable rights. And we use this creed to appeal to these wicked imperialist Britain people about alienating us of our unalienable rights. And we started a war and we won and go America. But all the while, we were alienating God's creation of their unalienable rights. Black people being enslaved for our industry. And the wrath of God has washed through and weaved its way through every area of our nation. And let me, let me be clear, I, I think it might be helpful at someday for the government to make an official declaration of repentance and renouncing the evils of our past, but it would not heal the land. Yeah. And why is that? Because our sin is primarily against the God in whose image we were created before it's against one another. Only God could incur and absorb the wrath to effectively clear us of what's due to us for our sin. The government couldn't fix it. It's absurd to think it could. Creation reveals God's glory. Humanity reveals God's nature. Sin reveals God's wrath. Number four, Christ reveals God's mercy. Christ is where God's wrath is absorbed, where his loving kindness and his mercy are most clearly seen at the cross. His mercy is revealed where as Jesus' older brother, who later came to faith after the moment of the cross, he later wrote, wrote in James chapter 2, this is where this cross point is where mercy triumphs over judgment. It doesn't help us to pretend like judgment isn't upon us. It's when we feel the weight of our real history and our real present and our very real wrath, and we hold it up against Jesus, if you think that your sin is too evil for God to forgive, I want to remind you that this is not humility. This is thinking very little of the glory of God's mercy revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's blasphemous to compare your fallenness as as more weighty than his mercy and glory. You need to know why Jesus' atonement, this moment of his atonement, was even possible. And this relates back to creation. Jesus is the perfect image of what mankind was supposed to be from the whole beginning. Jesus reveals that, and not in multiple people, in one perfectly united person that was created by, not created, but it was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin. Colossians 1, Paul goes on to say this about Christ. He, 
is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. In, in, in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There's a lot there. Sounds a lot like first and best and chief. Reshith Elohim. He is the perfect, the beginning, the ideal, the logos. And because he is perfect, he's the only one qualified to make a perfect sacrifice that would absorb all of God's wrath on humanity because he is the only perfect and spotless eternal lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And so he went to the cross willingly, not for his sin, but for ours. And after the cross, he was laying in a tomb. And it was darkness as the stone covered over the tomb. And the same God who said, let there be light, the same God who is light, spoke to that stone. And he said again, let there be light. And the stone obeyed. And Jesus got up out of the grave. And because of that, because of his life, he started just the same Jesus, the same one who was there in the beginning, calling nothing into something, started calling dead people into life. Yeah. He appeared to 500 people, and they were all living so much that they could be tortured, serious, awful things, and never recant their story about seeing a dead man who was now alive. And he appeared to so many others, and he came and spoke me into recreation. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 the God who said, let there be light, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How can we know these things? It's because God can shed his light in our darkness. And there's no competition between darkness and light. When, when Jesus comes and speaks light, he makes all things new. And so that means this, that our propensity to suppress knowledge of God and incur wrath comes against his desire to reveal his light to us and his light wins every time. And if God's calling you as we approach communion, if God's calling you to trade your darkness for his light and to receive new life, He's the one who says, behold, I make all things new. It could be a God showing you through the Holy Spirit, showing you right now that you're living a lifestyle that's displeasing to God and you need to repent. It's not me saying it. It's the Holy Spirit telling you your name and saying, arise to new life. Take my hand. It could be him saying, trade the darkness of your overwhelming disposition and depression and all these things that you've placed your weight and your focus in and, and receive my joy and I'll be with you in your pain. 
question is, is will you take his hand and follow him? Would you stand to your feet with me?